You're listening to West Coast Water Justice, where we talk about water in the Western United States. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. Today we're interviewing Dr. Ketcha Rizling-Baldi. I'll let you introduce yourself. I am Dr. Ketcha Rizling-Baldi. I am an associate professor and department chair of Native American Studies at Humboldt State University. I'm also Hoopa, Yurok, and Karuk, and enrolled in the Hoopa Valley Tribe. The first question I have is about the Klamath Dam removals and why it's important to remove the dams. Native people always see things as really interconnected, and I don't think that building dams was done in a way that really thought about the connection between the health of water and rivers and everything, the, the entirety of the ecosystem. So when we talk about what's the importance of dam removal, for me, it's sort of thinking about like the importance is, is that the health of our rivers is going to be really instrumental to the health of everything around us and then to the health of each other and our more than human relatives. So dam removal is incredibly important for the future of our planet in general. I think once we understand the history of, of building dams, what we kind of see is that It wasn't done in a way that valued long-term planning for the health of the environment and instead was a lot of the times about profit and resource extraction to the detriment of our environment. And at this point, when you look at the studies, the long-term studies that have been done about the importance of dam removal, there's really so many benefits and necessities because what we're seeing right now are the potential climate collapses of things like the salmon population and even things that are going on in our oceans with seaweed or the ways in which our our mussels or our, our marine life is reacting all the way to the health of ecosystems, the ways that trees grow, the ways that soil acts, and then even the health of like our own peoples. So dam removal to me is the only way to move forward. And and I can't say enough about how important it's going to be to so many things uh, to, to watch the dams come down. How important is the dam removal to the tribes in the river basin? I mean, I think for the Hoopa, and this is actually a lot of Native people who I have talked to about the health of rivers and waters specifically is we say our world is so very interconnected that what we understand is that you know, our river needs to be healthy so that our land is healthy, so that our fish are healthy, so that our bodies are healthy. So for the Hoopa people, we've been taught our whole lives. Like when we, when we grow up, what we learn about our river is that it is, it's like the artery, it's the artery of our lands. And it's what carries what we need to sustain life in our region, which is water. And if you think about it as an artery, if you think about the interconnectedness that it has with other river systems, the interconnectedness it has with the watersheds and creeks, what you start to see is you can't dam up an artery and not have it affect every other part of the system. If, if you were a human being and someone dammed up one of your arteries, that results in heart attack or stroke it's really detrimental to the entirety of your system. It's the same thing with our rivers. So what we learn in Hoopa is when we look at the health of the river, that's going to tell us about the health of everything else, the ecosystem in general. So we have to have a healthy river to have healthy life that you know is able to sustain itself. And I think that when the Hoopa people think about that, they're not thinking about just human beings in the sense of like, you know, homo sapien human beings. 
they're saying all of the more than human relatives, everything in our environment is dependent upon these river systems being able to act in a way that actually is protective, interactive, and feeds the rest of the systems. I think understanding that is really important, like seeing this grander, bigger connection between what you're doing on the river to everything else. We don't treat our river as independent of everybody else's river, but we think about the ways in which what we're caring for is really going to feed into what's happening down at the mouth of the rivers, then what happens in the oceans, then what happens in the mountains, and then what happens to all of these sorts of ways that these species are interconnected. That kind of really in-depth knowledge about ecosystem behavior comes from our indigenous science and management practices that are thousands upon thousands of years old. When we talk about the importance of dam removal, we are thinking about it in the context of understanding that we want all beings, all life to be able to thrive in a way that necessitates us caring for each other. And that to me is what we've been taught as Hoopa people so that when we look at the dam and we see the way it makes our river suffer, I think it makes it pretty clear to us that we have a responsibility as human beings to not make that kind of impact in the first place, but then also to make sure we fix these issues. And I think dams have always been a really big issue that has prevented us from seeing an ecosystem thrive the way it's supposed to, so that we can all have clean water, have clean air, have access to you know the things that we need to, to, live, to live in a good way. That's what we say in Hoopa, like to live in a good way. I like that. I'm looking at a map right now of the Hooper Reservation, and it looks like, is that like kind of where the confluence of the Trinity hits the Klamath? So the Trinity River is the main river that runs through the Hoopa Valley Square. This is not all of traditional or Aboriginal Hoopa territory. It, the square is what we were able to secure as a reservation, you know, post-gold rush, post all of the issues that we were faced with during the times in which they're trying to like genocide native peoples. And our Trinity River flows all the way through the Hooba Valley and then meets up with the Klamath River. So it's it's what they would call like a significant watershed. It actually feeds into the Klamath in a really important way to help keep the Klamath balanced and clean and healthy. So if you look at if the Trinity River is unhealthy, meaning it doesn't have enough water, algae's growing, there's low flows, then that is going to affect the Klamath River because the, the Klamath River needs the Trinity to feed into it, which then moves that water into the ocean. So if the Klamath River's sick and the Trinity River's sick, then the water that's going into the ocean isn't the water that you need to be able to sustain like ocean life or marine life. Same thing with the multiple watersheds that exist on the, like the creeks and things that feed into the Trinity Rivers or to the Klamath Rivers, those also need to be healthy. So we see all of these things as very interconnected to each other. We feel, I think, a really deep connection to the Klamath River in the Hoopa Valley. One, because of how integral, you know, the Trinity River is to it, but also because historically we would have traveled along these rivers to meet each other, to go to various dances and ceremonies, to have meetings and to intermarry. There's actually a story from my family of my great-great-grandmother Coming from Karuk country, she would have gone along the Klamath River to the Trinity River to come into Hoopa. So another thing that people really talk about is the ways in which our our travel routes were also determined by rivers. We traveled a lot along the rivers. We traded a lot along the rivers. I've heard scholars compare the rivers to like super highways because you could get from one place to another pretty quickly. And especially when you know the river really well, you can travel pretty quickly through the river. And so it connected us across borders and communities 
It required us to develop a lot of nation-to-nation relationships between tribes and to negotiate spaces and to think about like the fluidity of our borders or how we move through spaces because the rivers crossed borders. And so we had to think really internationally, we had to think across borders in the way that we understood what we were doing. People wouldn't say, oh, we're going to dam up our river or we're going to pour a bunch of things into it and it's just going to go down river and no big deal. We thought about like if, if what we're doing to our creeks and rivers affect downriver or upriver, then that is really important. So we can't just make decisions as if we're only being affected by this one area that we are mainly living around or working in. And I think that that's an important way to think. Like we were always thinking about what we do here is going to affect the ability of the salmon to grow in the Klamath. It's going to affect how people understand what's going on with the creeks. It's going to affect upriver, the ways that people are doing things in their area with their forests. Like we really saw this interconnectivity as we traveled along these rivers and built interconnections with each other. That makes sense. Just even looking at the map, it looks like the Aboriginal territories encompass a huge area in comparison to the reservation. Obviously, you'd be thinking about the whole picture. So when you're talking about upriver on the Hoopa, is the diversions, are those upriver on the Trinity or from the reservation? Kind of depends which river we're talking about. So like we'll say that something's upriver where we might be talking about the Klamath River, or if we say upriver, we might be talking about the Trinity River. Because we don't do north, south, east, west. Actually, our directions are upriver, downriver, toward the river, and from the river. And so we really like kind of anchor our view of the world around our river and our water. And I always tell people, I don't constitute it as worldview. Like, what's your worldview? We actually had like a water view. Like, how does the water view us? And how do we understand the ways in which we are in relationship and negotiating space through water? So it's like upriver, downriver, toward the river and from the river. And I think that the diversions on the Trinity River primarily happen around the sort of what is now like the Lewiston area, very near kind of like Redding, Shasta, like over in that direction. That's where we're getting most of the diversion from the Trinity River because of that dam. So the Lewiston Dam kind of takes most of our water they use it for multiple things. A lot of it is to feed lakes, so recreation purposes, and then farming, agriculture. They use that throughout the Central Valley to kind of like support agriculture. There's several other dams that are present on the Klamath River, which runs along, I'm, I'm using my hands, you can't see me, but it sort of runs this way. And then the Trinity runs into it. So I think when you're talking about like, where is the diversions, I think they come from all these multiple areas. Like there's dams on the Klamath, there's a dam on the Trinity, and all of that leads to diversion problems. Because even if, let's say, we didn't have a dam on the Klamath River, if we maintain the dam on the Trinity River, the Trinity River is still not feeding into the Klamath the way that it should be at various times throughout the year. So that still affects the health of the Klamath River's water. So all these things are very connected to each other. Whether Where the dam is, is one thing, but the fact that there are dams is going to affect every other river system because they are interconnected together. Can you share a little bit about how the Trinity and Klamath River ecosystems changed after colonization? And how was your ancestors' experience different from yours? It's really interesting because I grew up, and I don't remember... I don't remember it specifically, but I remember learning and talking to people about the way they talk about the river and the fish 
is really that you used to be able to, like the fish during the, the spawning season and when the salmon were returning to the Trinity River were so, there were so many of them. They say that you could walk along the backs of the salmon across the river if you wanted to. It was so full of salmon and that it was such a like a really vibrant and community-based time. There was a lot of fishing that was happening and elders always had access to fish and young people always had access to salmon. And it was really like a way of bringing community together. I grew up learning about salmon. And I remember my dad, when I was really young, teaching me how to fillet fish and how to like how to get a fish and care for it so that you could have it ready to eat. And we were always praying for the salmon praying for the water it was part of our world renewal ceremonies to sort of pray and make sure that the water was going to be healthy, that the salmon were going to be safe, that everything would return. And so I think that there was a lot of uh, community and care that was built into how we cared for each other because we had this access to our fish, which is such an important part of who we are. This was always the case prior to colonization, but I think we had been through so much where people tried to prevent us from being able to access our indigenous foods. It's like a tool of colonization to separate indigenous peoples from their foods. There's something about the sort of connection that we have that they wanted to break, you know, in order to try to assimilate us or destroy us. And they really did. I mean, even in the gold rush, one of the things that they did, aside from trying to sort of out and out genocide native peoples, was they they are also attempting an an ecocide of our more than human relatives of our natural resources. And so the salmon are affected during the gold rush in this way of being overfished, overharvested. There's pictures you can see of people posing with thousands of dead fish just on the shores that they're catching. You have people who immediately start running canneries and all these kinds of things and so trying to make money off of our fish. And you see an over harvesting and an overfishing in multiple areas, especially like in the San Francisco Bay Area, they talk about them, you know, harvesting the salmon to the point of extinction uh, in the Bay Area and the ways in which salmon has had to recover. They do the same thing in our region in the gold rush. They really try to take as much as possible. The gold rush is an environmental destruction, just as at the same time that they're trying to commit this genocide against Native peoples. And I think that we then come out of that. And despite the fact that they try to destroy this area, they try to destroy the land, they try to destroy the people, we still have this connection and we still have a land and a, and a river and an area that cares for us and provides us things that we need. And our connection to food, our connection to salmon has been a big part of that. When I was growing up, I learned all of that connection. And I think that what happened when I was younger during the Klamath River fish kill, and that was in 2002, is it kind of highlighted a sense of, I mean, I've heard a lot of people, elders especially, describe it as like a sense of apocalypse. So to give some background for listeners about the fish kill, it was in 2002, in the fall, when salmon were returning home to spawn in the Klamath and Trinity Rivers. Before being able to spawn, these salmon encountered low water flows and higher than normal temperatures resulting in a mass infection of parasites. Over 34,000 adult fall Chinook salmon were found dead along the shores of the Klamath River. If you were going to imagine what the end of the world looked like, you would imagine thousands upon thousands of dead fish on the shores of the Klamath River, right? 
you would imagine a fish kill of, of such epic proportions that, I mean, you would walk out and all you would see were carcasses of fish. At that point, how do you see a future when the world itself is in such disarray and imbalance that these fish could die? Weirdly, the fish kill, I think in a way, we felt a sense of responsibility for it, even though it had nothing to do with tribal peoples. It was it was a it was because of the policy of the government. It was because of the policies of agencies that valued the seizure of water for, you know, uses like recreational purposes over the life of the salmon that resulted in this like really horrific, you know, essentially like massacre of fish. But I think Native people felt kind of responsible to that. Like, like what could we have done or how could we have prevented it? I think it, it woke something up in a number of us young people at the time who could not understand just the depth of hurt. It was one of the first times in my sort of like young adult life that I remember seeing my grandfather cry. He was a very strong, like stolid man, but he was crying because it was a reminder that the current policies and laws don't actually protect us and actually really devalue us enough that they would allow something like this to happen. I think as a result of that, you saw an awakening of people who no longer were going to wait or ask for what needed to happen on these rivers, but instead a sense of like urgency that if this ecosystem is faltering in this way, if it's so unbalanced, then we have to do something. And that type of strength and resiliency, that comes from like a really long time of like what we've had to put up with from the first invasion contact all the way through the gold rush, all the way through all these other rushes, the timber rush and the mineral rush and all the things they've tried to, the boarding schools, like everything that comes up. And then you have this fish kill. I think that we were, we were really clear, like we had to we had to be the ones that were the voices for the salmon. We had to be the ones that fought for our more than human relatives. Salmon had always been there for us. It had always cared for us. It had always nourished us. It had always provided a connection for us to our waters and our homelands. Salmon never asked of us very much, but to live in cooperation with them. You know, we we take care of this environment. They take care of the environment. We work together. And now we were like, you know what? This is our job now. We're going to fight for and speak with and speak on behalf of the salmon because that's what's important. And I think that fighting that fight has been long, but I don't think Native people in general ever enter into a fight like that with the idea that maybe that it's going to happen immediately. I think some of us always enter into it like this might not actually happen in my lifetime, but I know, I know that it's setting up something really important for the, for the next generations. So I have to fight this fight, even if it feels impossible. And I think having these conversations about dam removal, people will tend to tell you dam removal is not possible. Dam removal is going to never happen. Dam removal is not something that people can envision or understand. But one, I don't know if we have an option anymore. I think dam removal is the only thing that's that's going to get us started in what we need to protect our ecosystems. But two, maybe it's not just for us. Maybe we have to start having these conversations now so that dam removal can happen. And if it doesn't happen in, you know, right away, it doesn't mean it's not worth fighting that fight. And I think Native people have always thought like that. You know, people will tell them, you're up against too many things. You're up against a whole governmental system that is not designed 
to protect you or your ecosystem or your life. Or We are still debating at a national level if there's climate change. I feel like the whole system's not set up to do that, but that doesn't mean that Native people aren't going to bite and they're not going to be there to stand up for what needs to happen, especially when it comes to the health of our earth and our salmon and, and our lands. And I think that's something that has been instilled in Hoopa from the very beginning. If you look at our history post-colonization, well, not post, we're still in the midst of colonization, but post this sort of like invasion contact with, with what becomes, you know, sort of like the settler colonial mentality. We were always people who were thinking about this as a long-term negotiation of what we needed to do to make sure that we could hold on to our ceremonies, our culture, our language. And Hoopa people were really good at negotiating that, but also making sure that we had things to carry forward. We were always fighting for our fish. We were always fighting for our lands. We were always saying the things that needed to be said. We come from such a long line of people who were like, we're not going to stop. We're not going to just sort of fold over and and say, nope, this is the end of a hoop of people. Instead, we're going to always, always make sure that we are maintaining our sovereignty, our self-determination. We did that all the time. And whether that be court cases or the refusal of us to move, they tried to remove us in the 1800s from our valley and we refused to go or the wars that we fought. We actually fought a war against the federal government at a point in the 1800s so that they would keep their promise that we could stay in our valley with our river. Our sort of refusal to be silent about these issues of pushing things through court cases, of showing up in people's spaces. I think that Native people all over this region have done that. I think Hoopa people have done that. I think we've maintained and understood that as part of what needs to happen, our resistance is an important part of how we're going to make sure that this earth is healthy enough that we can build better futures. And I think holding steadfastly to those beliefs, we're starting to see on a bigger scale that Native people are a really important part of how we're going to build climate resiliency. We have so much and such a long-term knowledge of this place that we are going to be able to build something that will help us to become climate resilient in a way that actually matters so that we can be here for the next thousands upon thousands of generations. And I think coming full circle in that way has been an important demonstration of why we kept fighting so hard, why we pushed forward things that I think sometimes people would say, that's not going to be possible. Well, we tried it anyway, and we're still pushing for dam removal, even if people don't think it could be possible. I think I see a future. I think I see a future with no dams. I think I can feel it. I think I know it. I know it well enough to know that if we start saying it out loud right now, maybe we can start helping people to envision that too. And then we can make it possible because nothing is possible or can become possible until we say it, till we make it come into being by saying, there could be a world without dams. And then I think we have to remind ourselves that impossible things have happened in our lifetime. There have been so many impossible things that have already happened. Land being returned to Native peoples that I think that they would have been told 10, 20 years ago would never be returned is being returned. Dams are being taken down throughout the world. There's a Native woman in charge of the Department of the Interior, Deb Holland, I have told people in several spaces, could you imagine like if we could travel back in time and go talk to Thomas Jefferson and just be like, hey, 
Thomas Jefferson in 2021, there's going to be a native woman in charge of the Department of the Interior. She's not only going to be in charge of the Bureau of Land Management, she's also going to be in charge of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So don't worry. Everything's great. We're going to have a native woman in charge. I think Thomas Jefferson would look at you and say, that's impossible. And that will never happen. And that's not anything that I could ever envision or picture. And you're telling me that's in 2021? That's like so far away. Who cares? Like it's so far away. Like he would not even be able to understand where we're at right now. He would think it was impossible. Well, guess what? It's 2021. So we're living in the future. And we have a Native woman in charge of the Department of the Interior. So yeah, impossible things are happening in our lifetime. So I don't think it's impossible. And I don't think we get to say things are impossible anymore. I think what we have to say is what we can envision to be possible and then work for that, even if we don't know if we're going to see it in our lifetime, it'll happen. There will be a world without dams. There will be like the salmon will run. We will make sure that those things happen. Thank you for sharing that. That's super inspiring. I was speaking with Brooke earlier from the Yurok tribe, and she was saying that they actually in the 70s had their fishing rights taken away. Did that also happen to the Hoopa? But there's all these kinds of like weird rules about where people can fish based on their tribal enrollment. And it used to be different. So it depends on the year that you're talking about. It used to be different where people could fish because tribes have certain ways of being able to say this is the hunting and fishing grounds of our tribe. And tribes can make decisions about whether they want those hunting and fishing grounds to be open to everyone or just a certain group of people who are enrolled in their tribe, right? So it sort of depends. But I will say that in in the 1970s, what you have is that the state of California decides that they're going to ban fishing on the Klamath River because of the decline of the salmon run that was happening and that people were sort of worried about what was going to happen to the salmon. Could they be overfished? You know, you have the tribal peoples who are still fishing in that area who are primarily Yurok tribal members because of where it's located, which is the mouth of the Klamath River, which is in Yurok territory. And I think that there's other people who are in support of that movement, that moment to sort of say, we're not going to stop fishing because one, you don't get to tell us that we're sovereign nations. Uh, and the second thing is, and this would be my argument, you can solve this problem by letting more water down and stop hoarding the water and take the dams down. You know what I mean? There was all these conversations about like the problem is being created by the policy of the state of California. We know what we can fish or not fish to make sure that things are going to be okay for the salmon. And you don't get to stop us because you're upset either a state entity or even in some cases it was the uh, commercial fishing entities who were sort of like, well, why do they get to fish if we don't get to fish? As if we're supposed to prioritize commercial fishing over the fishing rights of native peoples, et cetera. So I feel like there was all these kinds of things that came together. A lot of people were involved in making sure that the ongoing fishing was happening as part of the protest. And I think it was a really important moment because... It demonstrated, one, that Yurok people were like still here and that they were still fishing and that that was an important part of who they are and that we needed to do this for all of these reasons. And then two, that Yurok people, Indian people, Native people in this area were not, that we were not going to just back down because a federal government entity or a state entity said that we had to, but instead that we were going to continue to enact our knowledges, like our knowledge is a place to be able to make uh, certain things 
happen. And I think that it was an important moment for people to see that we could come together in really meaningful ways. And I have seen this happen in several other regions. Just recently, there was a group, tribal group in Canada, right, who were running up against this same issue. I think it was with either crab or lobster fishing, maybe. And you saw the ways in which like commercial businesses and the sort of provinces in, in the different regions were really upset because tribes are trying to say, hey, we get to make our own decisions about this. So that's one thing that happened like in the 1970s. You see this come up again and again, I think, in various places with how we need to sort of protest and make things happen. I'm also wondering if the United States government trying to control the reservations and where they're located, and then if that's also dictating the fishing rights, if that was a problem. I mean, a lot of that is looking really, you have to look kind of into this entire history of federal Indian law and what they do with uh, sort of the guaranteed sovereign rights of tribes through the different cases that come before them, especially regarding hunting and fishing rights and the, the ways in which the treaties guarantee tribal people's access to and ability to hunt and fish in the usual and accustomed places. And I think that there are some tribes that approach that as much more like open to multiple tribal peoples and members Uh, fishing and hunting in those areas. I think that what you see in terms of spaces like the Klamath and even the Trinity, we have to be cautious about like what a hunting or a fishing season would look like in these areas because of the fact that these dams have prevented the fish from being able to thrive in the same way. We also have wildlife issues because of that. Uh, It's not necessarily just that tribes are pitted against each other. It's that tribes are trying to negotiate how do we make sure that our tribal peoples are still able to get access to something and how do we also make sure that we maintain these relationships with other tribes. But I think they have to be cautious because of the state that our rivers are in right now. That could be very different in the near future when you're talking about dam removal. I'll say this about some of the Native people I know. So like my grandpa, for instance, he liked the fish that was coming up into the Trinity River because he grew up in Hoopa. That's his whole life. That's where he fishes. That's where his fishing spots were. So he would tell you that the Hoopa Trinity fish are better fish by the time they get into our river than the ones that are just coming out of the mouth because he likes the way they taste better. Their meat is a little bit different because they've they've traveled the whole rest of the way up the Klamath and they've come back into the Trinity River. So he has like a preference. I think some of us have preferences in that way. So some people would be like, oh yeah, like the Yurks love to fish the mouth of the Klamath River. and But we like to fish this part of the Trinity River. We like to fish this part of this river because that's where we get our best fish from. And part of it is, I think, a historical connection to that region and area. I don't know if it's necessarily feeling like we would all run to the mouth of the Klamath River if we could. But they would also tell you it tastes different. I mean, just like we would say that Alaskan salmon tastes different. I have a lot of people that are like Atlantic salmon tastes completely different. Then people have preferences of types of salmon. People will tell you in all the different ways. It tastes based on where it's at in its lifespan of returning back to the river. The really cool thing about salmon is, you know, they're returning home to spawn and we're mostly catching them as they're returning. Like if you're on the Trinity, you're catching them when they're at home, basically returned home. So they've been on a journey or really like a lifetime's journey. And people will say that they'll have a different kind of almost texture, I guess, because of the ways in which they've had to navigate the water, 
the water will kind of change even their their color and flavor. It's like an understanding of like the relationship to the salmon itself and then what you're doing as you're fishing it. And then you bring that into like how you understand your connection to what you're eating. And I think people feel that over a really long period of time. That's really cool that people are so connected to place. Is there anything else you feel is important to share with our listeners? There's been a lot of really awesome studies that have been done lately by like sociologists about how we understand the interconnection between like health and wellness and mental health of peoples and communities and then what's happening with the environment and environmental justice. I just like to remind people, a lot of times people will think that this argument about protecting salmon comes down to, they always say it's fish or food, right? It's, are you protecting the salmon? Are you protecting the farmers and the food and the agriculture? It's fisher farmers, fisher farmers. And I don't, I don't think it is that. I think when we look at the interconnection between what happens in regions like ours, like Hoopa, you're talking about a region that there are some periods of time where we can't go into our water. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, we found out that a a dog had died because of drinking water from the Trinity River. And they did the tests and determined that, you know, the blue-green algae is growing in the river again. What that means is they, you know, highly recommend that people don't go into the river, but also that especially children and pets, because they will drink the water if they're swimming around, that sort of thing. So what does it mean that you live in a place where periodically you can't touch drink or be around your water? What does it mean that then you notice the sort of unhealthiness of that river as it flows through? What does that mean as you watch as the salmon populations dwindle? We see a connection between the mental health of our people, especially our young people, and then what's happening in the environment. So I don't want people to just think about this as an environmental justice issue. I want them to understand that environmental justice issues are also about the health and well-being of young people and elders and our community. What does it mean to exist in a place where you could feel like a great sense of sort of hopelessness? What you see is a sick river and then you feel like, well, does that mean that everything's sick and am I sick and how do I take care of myself? I can't drink my own water. I can't go swimming. I can't get fish and feed it to my community. I can't eat my own fish, right? So that disconnection can exacerbate a number of really big issues that plague our communities. And we think of Native people, I mean, when we talk about them through scholarship or research, you talk about how Native people are often called the miners' canary. So what's happening in our communities is demonstrative of what's about to happen. When you talk about the potentiality of climate collapse, what does it look like that, you know, right now we're seeing um, really horrible things happen with our climate? We're noticing changes that are not beneficial we're like wondering what that means. Well, Native people have been living in a situation where people have prioritized corporate interests, business interests, capitalistic interests over everything. And what you're seeing now is what happens when you do that. And what you're seeing is climate collapse in real time. Uh, and I think that's what we're trying to demonstrate for people is like, this is going to matter. Even if you don't feel like it matters to you right now, it's going to matter to you. Because if they're willing to collapse the climate of the rivers that run through our region, they will keep doing that. It will keep taking and taking and taking. And more 
ecosystems are going to collapse because we have to change the way that we approach what we do. And if we don't, it affects our young people. You start to see increases in attempted suicide, depression, diabetes, right? Like long-term illnesses and sicknesses. These sociologists and studies have been able to connect to what's happening in our environment. So think about it all as so very interconnected. It's why I admire Indian people. They're trying so hard to maintain and connect that even when they see these things happening, they're also trying to push back and make changes. So I, I want people to remember that. Like, this is something that is going to affect everyone eventually. But also we're watching in real time as the policy is allowing people to like suffer and have really, really horrific effects happen in their communities. And then they're basically saying, well, you know, growing almonds is more important than your young people who can't go in the water. Growing, growing this crop that's going to make us money is more important than the health of this river, which determines the health of entire ecosystems and communities. And I just want to remind people of that. We are fighting this fight, not just because we want fish. We're fighting this fight because it's telling us that we have to keep this part of our ecosystem healthy. We don't want to see the downfall. And we also know that there's a connection between being able to have clean and healthy rivers. And then you have people who are also healthy and happy and able to do the things that they're supposed to do. I just feel like it's a no brainer to say that we should all want a world where everyone can drink the water and everyone can taste the fish and the berries and the things that the earth provides for us and where everyone can breathe. And I, I don't think that that's asking for too much. And that's going to be the result of dam removal. That's going to be the world that we're creating. And to me, that's a no-brainer. All the things that you can tell me are the reasons we have to have dams are things that I can pinpoint and problem solve with other things that we could do, other priorities we could set. But if we don't prioritize the health of our rivers, there's only so many rivers. There's only so many watersheds. There's only so much fresh water. There's only so much that we can do. And I feel like that that needs to be the priority over anything else. It's time for us to step up. That was Dr. Ketcha Rizling Baldi from the Hoopa Karuk and Yurk tribes. And she's enrolled in the Hoopa Valley tribe. Ketcha is department chair and associate professor of Native American Studies at Humboldt State University. You've been listening to West Coast Water Justice, produced by me, Natalie Kilmer. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The music is from the album Now That's What I Call Surf by Tony Bald, Adam Anigias, and Danny Snyder.